This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 10, Episode 38. This is Writing Excuses. How does context shape dialogue? 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry? And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Howard. I'm Mary. And I'm Dan, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Nakedly. (laughs) Ew. These are my couches. Um, Oh, context. (laughs) All right. So dialogue. It's usually me that goes there. (laughs) Dialogue, dialogue. Well, Howard does. Okay. Moving on. (laughs) Dialogue. How do you write good dialogue, Mary? Um, (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, Brandon. (laughs) As you know. As you know. um, What is this, season three again? (laughs) Can you tell this is the last episode we're recording today? Uh, <laughs> except it's not. Uh, we have one more after this. Oh, okay. Talk. So, <laughs> so um, we wanted to talk about context around dialogue specifically. Dialogue is something that we've talked about a lot, but um, the 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 environment in which the words are said, the genre can change the meaning. The uh, the emotions of the characters, even the uh, setting, can change the the impact that the dialogue will have. Even you know, identical words said in an identical way will mean something different depending on where they're being said and yeah. how. The yes. the exercise that we do in puppetry, um, and I, I make my my writing students do it too, is um, what did you say? Uh, and the idea is that. Uh, the body language that goes with that completely shapes the perception of how that is said. And in, while I can't do the body language for our listening audience, the, the way that works on the page is if I say, what did you say? The principal opened the drawer and put a paddle on the desk. That's a very different read than mm-hmm. what did you say? She leaned away from the speakers that were blaring punk rock music dialed to 11. You know, and what did you say? He adjusted his hearing aid. All of these completely change what what did you say means. Um. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that really does. Um, and sometimes I don't think we, as writers, think about this quite enough. The issue is we also don't want to have a beat every line. Exactly. And this yeah. is a problem I see with my unless students. Unless you're me. Well, yes, unless you're you. <laughs> um, but with my students... A lot of times they're trying to get dialogue right, and what they'll do is they'll he walked to he, you know he walked to the to the door. Oh, what's going on? She walked to the door with him. Oh, this is going on. They looked at the cars. Oh, this is and yeah. it, everything yeah. has some sort of an, the reason you don't want to have that is these things are important for context, but they're going to distract you. Each yeah. one is a distraction from the context of the conversation. Yeah, in, in puppetry, again, this is something we call head bobbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see puppets where the head will move with every single syllable, and it becomes muddy. And with characters on the page, you have a limited set of facial expressions. Mm-hmm. And so when you are giving constant information to the reader, mm-hmm. they can no longer tell what's important. And, and with puppetry, what we do, and, and this is what I do with, with dialogue when I'm writing as well, is that I will pick one, you know, what is the thing that I'm trying to underscore. And I will use body language if there is an ambiguity or if right. I want to emphasize something. And otherwise, I, 
in theory, the dialogue should be able to carry right. itself. Now, I do like to use it to keep you in the scene also. So yeah. every you know, four or five lines, I like to make sure there's something so we're reminded, oh, wait, this is what they're up to. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divert this topic a little bit. Um, what do you think causes new writers to write stilted dialogue? Is there something you can diagnose that commonly they do when they, you, you read this dialogue and you're like, this just feels stilted? Mimicry, where they don't realize that they're mimicking the okay. influence. What do you uh, mean by that? Um, you're going to be sorry you said that. Okay, so using oh, cliches. We've all yeah. yes. heard that. Using and cliches, and I would say using a lot of pop culture references. Yeah. Which, yeah. when done well, we all like it and we go great. But done poorly, it it it's worse than a cliche. Sometimes it just rips you out of the story, or you go, that feels really forced. I would say one of the big ones for me um, is. Reader, uh, new writers tend to forget the motives that their characters have in a particular scene of dialogue mm-hmm. and focus instead on the goals of that scene of dialogue. Yeah. Meaning, well, they need to have a conversation about this thing. Let's make sure that they're having a conflict because I know there's got to be conflict. And suddenly you have characters acting outside their motives and it feels stilted for that reason. Yeah, and mm-hmm. the other thing, uh, which is actually where I thought you were about to go, is uh, on-the-nose dialogue. Mm, yes, oh which, yes. Uh, which is where the character says exactly the thing that they are thinking in exactly the way they are thinking it. Mm-hmm. And that they have they don't have any subtext going on. And frequently, when we are having conversation, there's a lot of uh, shared background. There's also hidden motives and other things which will affect the way we're sh- saying no, that's perfect. Liner notes. It. If we uh, <clears throat> go back and uh, do look at the uh, project in depth for um, uh, parallel perspectives, mm. when I wrote the dialogue and then handed it to the illustrators, and then they illustrated to the dialogue, and I got it back and realized all my dialogue, if I use it as is, is on the nose, uh, which is bad. But now I have the opportunity to tell a whole new story and add subtext um, and. It's, it's wonderful as a result. And I think that uh, thinking about it in that way, thinking about, thinking about how the context can deliver that, uh, opens things up for you. Yeah. yeah. So I think when you're, when you're writing dialogue, there are three pieces that you need, potentially four, but the three pieces to think about. Uh, one is why your character is saying it. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, it what they are trying to achieve. Uh, who they are addressing, because who you are addressing will change how you say things. And then the last one is, what is the function that it is serving in the scene for you, the author? Right. Um, and that the, the dialogue is a combination of all those things, which does not necessarily help you write less stilted dialogue. Right. <laughs> um, the other thing that I see with stilted dialogue is um, sentence structure that is all very much the same. Yeah. Uh, and and this is, again, for me, a context thing when we're looking at dialogue is that the way you say things will depend on who you are talking to and where you're from. Like when I am talking to my parents, uh, you know, I, I, my family is from the South, mm-hmm. and I don't take on a Southern accent, but the way I say things changes. So Right. You use Miss Emily and things like this um, yeah, with, yeah. with yeah, my wife, yeah. which is totally bizarre. Yeah. To a Westerner. 
she's not a miss. She's Mrs. Yeah. But Miss Emily, um, mm. instead of saying, I'm going to the store, I'll say, I'm going to go on over to the store. Mm-hmm. I don't know what those extra words are doing there, but they have to be there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that I also have my students do with the what did you say exercise is that I will have them write it. Uh, so this is not your homework assignment, but go ahead and give this one a try. Uh, write down what did you say, but but give it to me so that I can tell that someone else is saying it. Um, so let me see. Let me hear a, a British person mm-hmm. say it. Um, change the intention of how it's being said. Mm-hmm. You know, if I want to make it very clear that the reason this is being said is because someone couldn't hear, right? Then you know. Have I guys told? Have I told you guys my favorite? Making no. someone speak British. No. Um, I just started using the British spelling. Oh, yeah? Uh, it was so much fun to write their dialogue um, <laughs> with extraneous U's and things like this. And it's one of those things you look at the page and you don't even notice it, but it was so much fun as a writer yeah, to hilarious. be using the British. <laughs> I wish that I had, uh, th- that I could set up a camera and let you guys watch me draw faces under the oh, dialogue, that every day. the you dialogue know, that I've written. He hasn't found the that. camera yet. Plot twist. Um, I'll just tell Sandra to move it. The, <laughs> the uh, I will very often draw, you know, the face of someone who is saying a line of dialogue and realize it's not the right facial expression. That doesn't mean what I wrote, and I'll change it. And sometimes I will accidentally create something that is that is working at cross purposes Mm -hmm. and I will discover that this strip is way better than I thought it was because I've created a new context for this line. Yeah. Sometimes also the context is, um, the, the way, so the, the, it's not just how my character and what my, what my point of view character is, is thinking, but also how my point of view character reacts to what is said to them. Um, like, I recently had a conversation uh, with a family member who is from the South, mm. um, and and I was telling a friend, it's like, so so they basically, they, they begged me to come, and they said, really? They begged? And I said, well, what she actually did was she stated that this event was happening, and when I said, oh, I could probably come home, she said, that would be great, instead of, oh, you don't really have to readjust your schedule. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... In, better be there. <laughs> I was like, yep. That was that was a that was a demand mm-hmm. in in that context. But here that would not be. No, that here, demand. No, no, here that would just be. Oh, that's a thing. Right. I was actually told when I was going over to. I just got back from Abu Dhabi. They said someone told me be careful about stating a desire for something. Yeah. Because they will take that as a request for this thing, and their hospitality is called into question if they can't provide it for you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Yeah. Really interesting. Let's go ahead and do our book of the week. Dan, you're going to talk yes. about Wolf Hall. Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Uh, kind of in the news right now, PBS Masterpiece is doing a uh, miniseries of it. It is the first book in a series about Thomas Cromwell, kind of showing the other side of the Man for All Seasons story about Thomas More. 
Um, I'm currently reading the second book, which is called Bringing Up the Bodies, which I like even more. But start with Wolf Hall because it's incredible. And one of the great things about it in terms of context is that the writing in it is so spare. It's very beautifully written, but it's very different. It's, it's not the way you're used to getting narration or dialogue. And the dialogue in particular, you don't always get a lot of cues as to who is saying what, and you have to pick that up from the context. And they speak in very veiled terms. It is a primarily political novel about Henry VIII and all of his various machinations and things with the Church of England. And so the characters in the story can't always come right out and say what they mean because they'll be killed for it. And so they have to speak um, in, you know, double talk. They have to imply a lot of things. And it's really just beautiful to read through. And once you get into the rhythm of it, you, you just kind of flow along and see all these incredible ways she is using the context to add meaning to what is, at the end of the day, very, very spare dialogue. Excellent. and Really how- cool stuff. Okay, so it is Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. It is read by Simon Slater, and you can get it uh, for free on audiblepodcast.com slash excuse if you start a 30-day trial membership. Fantastic. Now, one of the things I notice um, with my students is they like to put big blocks of dialogue, huge, big, long paragraphs. Um, and sometimes those are appropriate. Sometimes I feel like it's really ruining the scene. Yet if you actually listen to people, we tend to speak in big blocks of dialogue. And so I'll, I'll go to the student and say, you really ought to chop these up. And they're like, but this feels real to me. How much do you guys try? How, how do you balance this idea between what's going to look good on the page and read well versus what's actually realistic? So for me, one of the things that about the reason that um, that big chunks of dialogue look uh, mm-hmm. intimidating, in, not intimidating, uh, look like a monologue on the page, mm. while, while in in actual conversation with people that they, they are a dialogue, right? Is that there's a lot of nonverbal cues that are going on, or even little verbal ones like I just gave. Yes, exactly. So those. Putting those little insertions in can help it feel more natural. That just just dropping in the other character asking a question mm-hmm. or having a moment of surprise can make it feel more organic, like a, a, mm-hmm. a like a conversation that you would have in a in a room. But there are times when you do want a character to monologue. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's one of the things that you're looking at when you're trying to make those decisions is going back to our conversations about pacing. You know, is one of the characters dominating right now? Mm -hmm. Um, Or is, you know, if if you have something where there is not a lot of punctuation and the character is just doing this big spew of of excited energy, that's going to read very differently than someone who just... When I'm going to write these... I know I've got a big, you know, characters can be speaking for the main, the whole page. I start to make sure, or I, I naturally start to have them speak more colloquially. So, Interesting. meaning they're like, so you know how it feels when this goes on? Where I normally wouldn't have them, I'd say, I felt like this, or not too on the nose like that, but when you're putting that in, it's the character oh, yeah, starting yeah. to ask for this, which makes it feel more natural, like mm-hmm. the dialogue you've read before, so that even when those nonverbal cues aren't even put in as beats, you're imagining them. 
because mm-hmm. the main character started, or the narrating character started speaking colloquially. Exactly. If it feels like, or if it, if it feels like a wall of text, mm-hmm. then that's going to hurt. Whereas, you know, the more amount of personality you can put into it, yeah, you know, then it doesn't feel like a person standing in the middle of a stage and just speaking to the audience. Uh, just this morning, I inked a scene in which Captain Tagon is telling a story. And he's telling the story with gestures, and I'm mm-hmm. actually showing a new side of him, which is him telling a story that the, the reader uh, of previous books will have right. been familiar with. And one of the listeners, uh, he says something, you know, the very first, where he complains about the little girl who was in charge of the ship and there was nothing I could do about it. One of his listeners is female, and her, she says, I hate it when that happens. But the way I drew her, she went from standing, you know, in a very natural pose to standing with her arms folded and sort of a scowly, lidded expression so that the reader can see, oh, she's, she's not really participating in the conversation the way Tegon thinks she is. And he does not miss a beat. He just keeps going on with the story, which, in terms of subtext has now given us insight into these two characters, which is going to let me do fun things that I haven't written yet, so I should probably stop talking. Yeah, but <laughs> this, is, this is great. And actually, I thought of Dan's first-person novels. Mm. I mean, first-person is basically a long story. Yeah. But it works because you add all of these nuances into the way the character's speaking and how they're interacting. And that needs to be in your dialogue when you're not in a first-person narrative. You need to have all of that. All of that fun um, and character and personality coming through in the way that the people speak. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, for me, always gets back to motivation. It's like the, the number of times that I read a line, I'm like, why would anyone say that you have to know how the other person is going to respond? Hmm. Um, sometimes, and this is commentary about our tribe, um, <laughs> Sometimes I have noticed some writers getting annoyed with other people in real conversation. Uh And I think it's because they expect people to be able to follow that script. Yep. I do have to say it's been a lot of fun writing the Reckoner series, which are first person. um, Because, you know, one of the characters is really bad with metaphors and similes. And that dialogue, it makes the dialogue so much more fun to have something linguistically that can make this character stand out. And that's, that's one of the things that I look for, is how is each character going to stand out linguistically in the way that they speak? Yes. Because we all do it. Yeah. And you can, you can always tell when someone is doing that poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to mention, as much as I loved the second Avengers movie, a lot of those characters just sound like they're the same person. Yeah, they're all yeah. Joss Whedon they're writing all, snappy dialogue. Ultron in particular, who should oh. be the menacing bad guy, yeah. sounds like... Everyone else, it's just Xander. It's just Tony Stark. Again. That was actually a great movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. Great movie. But that was my least favorite part of it was yeah. that um, that Ultron sounded like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And in my the first movie, some of my least favorite parts were where were where Black Widow sounds like everyone else. The wonderful line where she's like, "That doesn't sound like a party." When you know, it's like, "I'm bringing the party to you." It's not something she would say. I don't, I haven't, you know, she's not that dense. She's not, she doesn't fail yeah. to get a metaphor. She's not that guy in Guardians of the Galaxy that's trying to grab things to go over his head. Anyway, yeah. we're totally out of time. This is a fun, fun topic. Um, and to go with it, we actually have what I think is one of the best writing exercises <laughs> we've come up with for this master course. And Mary's going to talk you through it. 
Okay, so this one um, is a three-parter, and you do not have to do all three parts, but if you want to, get ready. So we are going to have on the website uh, an, a transcript of something in that we call in theater an A-B scene. And an A-B scene is just basically, it's a script with no, uh, no character descriptions, no names, nothing, just dialogue from a character A and character B. What I want you to do is I want you to give us context around that. So you're going to shape the dialogue. You can't change the dialogue, but you will shape the dialogue by changing the description around it. So um, I want you to do this, and we're, I'm going to have complete detailed instructions on the site, but basically what you're going to do is you're going to take the ABC in the first time, you're going to write it in one genre, then you're going to do it again, and you're going to change it to a completely different genre. Then, with, like, with different characters, same dialogue though, and then you're going to take the one that you like better, so this is pass two, and your second pass what you're going to do is you're going to take the one of the genre that you like better and you're going to flip to the other character's point of view because, again, that's going to change the context and the way those lines of dialogue are being perceived. And you have to make everything make sense. And then you're going to flip it one more time. And that last pass is you're going to take the dialogue that's already there and you're going to remove all of it and replace it with completely different dialogue but leave the context the same. So as I say, I'm going to have full instructions up on the website. Uh, the AB scene is there. Um, it's, it will drive you a little bit crazy, but it's really worth it for getting a, I, a hang on this. At the risk of lengthening the episode, I had a chance to do that uh, with the new John Cleaver book. Oh, yeah. Because there's the book and then the novella from the different characters' point of view. And in one scene, I had to keep like exactly like we're talking. All the dialogue is exactly the same, mm -hmm. but we're getting a different character's perspective on it. And you're right. I learned... So much about how dialogue works yeah. you know, by doing a, that. There's a short film competition that does this. Oh, they yeah. get an A-B scene and then film a scene. Uh, the best one I've seen from one of these is one called Room 8. Oh. Uh, I would go watch that. And then you can go watch all of the others, which are still all very good, that use the exact same dialogue yeah. and how different each of the films are. They're fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's a great acting exercise. They actually had us do that at the Sesame Street workshop, too. So we were doing that with puppets. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 